today we're going to look at um, the, the parable. We've been looking at parables for a while now, and today we're going to look at my least favorite parable in the whole Bible. It's called the parable of the talents. I want you to know right off the bat, I hate this parable. I hate it, hate it, hate it. I've always hated it. Real quickly, let me just give you a, a kind of a cliff note version of the parable so that I know we're all on the same page, and then we'll look at it in depth. as we. I'm, I'm going to give you Matthew's version um, in summary, and then we'll look at Luke's version because they're just a little different, but they're the same. So the story goes, Jesus said there's a man who was a master. He had, he had a farm. He had property. And he was going on a long journey, so he left his property to his servants, to three servants. He gave one servant five talents. He gave another servant two talents and another one one talent. And he said, do business with these talents. A talent is a measurement of weight. So a weight of gold or a weight of silver. He doesn't say if it's gold or silver, but it's a measurement of weight. So it's a talent of silver or a talent of gold. He gave five, three, and one and said, go do business, trade with this until I return. And Jesus specifically says he was gone a long time. And when he came back, he asked the guys, let's settle accounts. What did you do? The first guy said, I took your five. I doubled it. Here's five more. And the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a little. I will set you over five cities. Wow. Second one said, here you go, sir. sir. Here's your two. I doubled it. And now there's four. Again, well done. I'll, give you, I'll make you master over two cities. The third guy said, here's your one talent, sir. I knew that you were a hard man, that you sow where you do not reap, that you take what's not yours. And so I was afraid of you, and I buried it in a hole. And the master said to him, not well done, you good and faithful servant, but you wicked, lazy servant. I will condemn you with your own words, he says. If you knew that I was a hard man and that I reap where I do not sow and I take what's not mine, then it seems logical to me that you could have at least put it in the bank and made interest. But now take what I've given him and give it to the one with five and throw this man into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The end. I hate that parable. Raise your hand if you've heard it before. Raise your hand if you've wrestled with it before. It doesn't make any sense to me. Everything that I know about God and everything that I know about the Bible gets thrown out in this parable because, first of all, they're, they're all servants of the king. They're all already in. Remember last week I said that the, the picture that we're going to see through these parables of judgment is in before out, inclusion before exclusion. So they're already in. But then at the end of it, the one gets thrown in hell because he didn't perform right. And that lies in the face of everything I know about the Bible, everything that I've been teaching. <laughs> so I hate this parable. Always I've hated this parable. <laughs> I've lost sleep over it. I have sat at a table with some my seminary friends. We've argued about it. I've, I've wrestled with self-proclaimed theologians, <laughs> right? What is this about? And, and it's, it's difficult. But I've learned something new as, as I was studying it this week. I'm excited to share it with you. But first, let me share with you what you've probably heard before to make sure that I, let me just teach you a good old silly Sunday school lesson, okay? How's that? Let me just give you the silly Sunday school explanations. Um, here's, a, here's, here's, here's one. Um, it's about talents. So let's take the Greek word talent, which means a unit of measure to how much you would, go, you know, gold or silver, and let's make it, you know, your special gifting. So you're a singer, you're a painter, you're a businessman, you're, you're, you're good at making money. Don't bury your talent. Live up to your full potential. Don't waste your God-given gifts. 
Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Yes. And that's fine. I mean, that's not a bad message, right? You would say that to your kids, son. My mom said it to me all the time. Son, God gave you the gift of singing. You should sing. But I don't. Don't waste your talent. And that's, that's fine. But it doesn't work, does it? Because every single one of you are wasting your talent to some degree, I bet, or at least you think you are. And what happens to the one who wasted the talent and buried it in a hole? He got thrown to hell. So here's the big picture. If you don't use your talent that God gave you, you're going to hell. That's the Sunday school message, though. But the Sunday school teacher always forgets that part about hell, right? Don't waste your talent. Don't bury it under a bushel. No. <laughs> here's another one. This is the adult version of the silly Sunday school lesson. It's not about your talent necessarily. It's about fruit. When you go to heaven, are you bringing someone with you? Right? That's kind of about that. Use your gifts, whether it be um, um, baking or being a home mom or, or, or being a dancer or a singer or a doctor, whatever it is. Use your gifts. Fine. Do what you want with those. But in the end, use them to the glory of God and bring people to Jesus. Dance for Jesus. Bake for Jesus. Be a mom for Jesus. Do all those things for Jesus. And then in the end, bear fruit. Multiply yourself. Share the gospel and the good news and bring disciples to Jesus. And again, that's good, isn't it? I would preach that message. You know, you don't have to be a missionary. You can be a stay-at-home mom. You don't have to be a preacher. You can be a ballerina, and you can do those things to the glory of God. And if God gave you those gifts and use them, that's a good message. But not this. And if you don't, you're going to hell. Right? It doesn't work. It doesn't float. Everyone would be in hell. If you're faithful with little, he will give you much. And how faithful are you right now with the little that he's given you? Who in here would raise your hand and say, I'm pretty faithful? You wouldn't. So we're all out of luck. That's why I hate this parable. But I want you to know that I don't think this parable is about how you need to do better and try harder and be gooder with the talent that God has given you. This parable is not about that. It's about something completely different. What's it about? I'm pretty sure that I've been listening to recently. His name's Steve Brown. He's a Reformed theological professor. That means he's a Presbyterian professor in um, Florida. And he says, if you look at the implications of this text, and if you take it as it's normally taught, which is the way I just described it for you, it will drive you nuts. And you don't have a prayer. Like, as you said, we're all, we're all going to hell. If this, if this parable is true. So well, then what's it about? What's it about? Well, before we can see what it's about, let me give you a piece of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy word, which just means the rules and how you study the Bible. So when you study the Bible, there's like eight or 10 rules on how you should study it. One of the rules you've heard me say before, and that is context is important, right? You always have to look at the context of where the thing is happening. Today, the rule I want to introduce to you is this one, which is no text of scripture properly interpreted in its context, will contradict another text of Scripture. Hmm. If a contradiction or when contradictions seem to exist, it is the task of the interpreter or the Bible student to explain the seeming contradiction. Let me put it in modern English. You know certain things about God as you've read the Bible, and so when you know those things about God, if you read a passage or a story in the Bible that seems to contradict the things that you already know about God, don't throw out all the things you already know about God just to maintain this text. Instead, dig deeper and try to understand what this text is really about. Does that make sense? 
So for instance, in this text, it says a lot of things about God and about salvation that I've never understood and I've not liked it. I've wrestled with it. So what do you do? Throw out everything else? God's not merciful. God's not love. You better be afraid and you better try harder. Or should we say something else is happening in this? text? I believe we should say something else is happening in this text. Let's do it. Let's look at it. Let's just go, let's just go look at it a little bit. I'm going to read for you verse by verse the Luke version. And I chose the Luke version because the Luke version is actually harder than the Matthew version. The Matthew version is shorter and it's a little nicer. The only person who goes to hell is the guy at the end. But in the Luke version, a bunch of people go get slaughtered. <laughs> so I'm going to read the hardest version of them all and then try to show you that it's not about how you need to try harder or else you're going to hell. It's about grace again. But judgment is a response of God based on our response to his grace. Does that make sense? It's not judgment against you for not using your gifts correctly. It's judgment against you for not understanding grace, for not receiving grace. So far, as we've looked at the parables, isn't that what we've always seen? God doesn't get mad at us because we make mistakes. God gets mad at us when we don't get grace. Do you remember the, uh, the, the wicked, I mean, the, the forgiving servant who forgave the guy 10,000 talents? Remember that one? But then he just forgave him. You owe me 10,000 talents. Go. You're free to go. But then that guy tried to beat a buck out of someone, and then the master got ticked off. He doesn't get mad because he owed him 10,000 talents because he had so much debt. He got mad because he didn't get grace and he didn't give grace. That's what makes God mad, not whether or not you used your gift to its full potential. Let's look at it. Jesus says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they um, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Let me just state the obvious. The nobleman is, what do you think? Who is it? Isn't it obvious? It's Jesus. Jesus went away to a far country, i.e. he died and went to heaven, Right? And he rose and ascended into heaven and received the name above all names. And he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he was his kingdom. This is, it's clearly him. And he's coming again. Second, second coming of Christ. We would call it the parousia in Greek, which means he's going to come to bring us home to, and to judge. So calling 10 of his servants, Luke has 10, he gave them 10 minus, which is, a, which is a, just another um, term for, for money. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens, this is completely different than the, the Matthew version, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So the king is left to go receive the kingdom. And then a bunch of other people have said, we don't want him to be king of this kingdom. We don't want to serve this king. Interesting, isn't it? There were citizens who don't want him. Why? Because they don't like Jesus. They don't like Jesus' left-handed ways of, I will die for you, you die with me, and I will raise you up. You be the last, the least, the little, and the lost, and I will raise you up. But if you want to win, I can't do anything about that. People don't like that message, and so they don't want him to rule over them. Moving on. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And I highlighted a word there for your pleasure. 
the word little. Again, with the whole concept of Jesus is after the least and the lost sheep and the lost coin and the little guy. He says, In, if you're faithful with a little, just, just be faithful with the little thing that I've given you, the little grace, the little, the little mercy, the little salvation, I will, I, it will blow up on you. Congratulations, you shall you have authority over cities. And the second came saying the same thing. Lord, your mind has made five. He said, well done, you'll be, you'll be over five. All right, the end for now. We'll save the hell part for just a few seconds. Well, it's not the end, though, is it? It's actually just the beginning of the story. If you think about it, the whole rest of the story is not about these three guys. It's really all about the one guy. Am I right? The first two guys, well done, good and faithful servant, go. We're out. Now the rest of the story is all about the one guy. So it's all about the one guy, really. If you look at the rest of the story, there's quite a bit of text there that's all about him. The rest of the text is just like that. But, and if you are honest with me, as you hear the story, who do you relate most to in the story? First guy, the second guy, or the third guy? Someone say third guy. Yeah, you do, right? I just want to make sure I'm not the only one who buries things in holes. <laughs> you relate mostly to the third guy, and then that's why you don't like the parable, and you say, oh, I'm in trouble. So it's all about the third guy, and so let's analyze the third guy. The other guy came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I like the whole analogy better, but we'll just go, we're going with the same text here. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man, and you take what you do not deposit, and you reap what you do not sow. All right, so I want you to notice something here. Rule number two in hermeneutics is um, everything, if, if it contradicts what you already know about the Bible, then seek and dig deeper to find out what's really happening there. Let me ask you this. Does that seem to contradict what you know about God? Is God a severe man who takes what's not his? Reaps where he does not sow? Okay, some of you are saying no, and that's the right answer. But let's be honest. Have you ever thought of God like that? Have you ever thought that I know he's just going to get me? He's going to, he's going to, he, he's mad at me. And he is punishing me. My life sucks because he's mad at me. My car broke down because he's mad at me. Raise your hand if I'm, if I'm not the only one who thinks that way sometimes about God. Okay, good. So we're just like the younger, this guy in the sense that we sometimes are afraid of God and thinks that he's a hard man, but he's not. Just a few verses before this, Jesus said this, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and I am humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Contradicts. Jesus' own words contradict this parable's character's words about God, right? And if we were to go to the Old Testament, you would see over and over and over again this word hesed, God's loving kindness, his extended mercy, his patience with Israel. God is not a hard man. God is a kind, loving father who loves his children. Yes, he disciplines them, but he does it because he loves them, not because he wants to get them. All right, so let me show you this. The master, or Jesus, said to the man, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. I think this is the pivotal verse of the whole text. I will condemn you with your own words. In other words, I don't believe that this man is getting condemned because he buried the treasure simply. 
I don't believe that he would be condemned if he invested the treasure in a bad investment and lost it all. I don't believe he would have. Because I have the other parable where the guy owed 10,000 talents and the guy forgave him. I believe that if this guy lost it all, he'd be like, well, at least you tried. I believe that he's condemning him on his own words. That's what he says. I'm condemning you because of your words. Well, let's look at his words. What does that mean? He says, he see, well, let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. <laughs> you said that you knew that I was a severe man taking what's not mine and reaping what is not mine. What's the punctuation at the end of that sentence? It's a question mark. This is very, very important. So Jesus, or the master in the parable, is not confirming the guy's words. He's asking a question. Is this what you know about me? Is this, is this what you said you knew? He's not saying, he's not, I've read it before like this. He's not saying, you knew that's how I am. He's saying, is this what you knew about me? Do you see the difference? Not, he's not confirming it. He's actually doing the opposite of confirming it, which is, what, are you, what is that? Not questioning it? Okay, good. It's a question mark. There you go. Let's do that. He's questioning it. And the word knew doesn't have to mean he knew it, like he got it. It means he perceived it. I perceive that you were a hard man. And so he says, if you perceive that, which, by the way, isn't true, but if that's what you perceived, wouldn't it make sense, and here's the next thing, that you would put my money in the bank? If you thought that I was going to get you for not making a profit, then why didn't you at least put it in the safe bank and get a profit? But that's not what you did. You buried it. So I'm going to condemn you with your own words. You don't know me. You don't get me. And you totally messed up. Because if you were thinking, you would have at least put it in the bank. So far, the only bookkeeper in the story is the man. You see that? The God figure, the Jesus figure, isn't keeping books. Hmm. The bookkeeper is like, I knew you did this and you did that, and this is the way you act. And so what I did was I got scared and I, I hid it. He could have put it in a, in a money market account and made less than 1%, right? <laughs> so Jesus said to those, or the man, the, the, I just keep saying Jesus because it's clearly Jesus in the story. And he said to those who stood by, take the minor from him and give it to the one who has 10. And listen to the crowd's response. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minors. I like this part of the story because that's the way you and I would feel, right? What? Why are you giving it to him? <laughs> He's already gotten more than he, can do, than he knows what to do with. Give it to one of these other guys. The other guy multiplied it, right? Doubled it even. Give it to him. You and I want it to be fair. But then also see last week's parable about the laborers in the vineyard. And God does that on purpose to say it's not fair. The gospel's not fair. The good news of Jesus is not fair. If it was, we're all in trouble, amen? This is how Jesus responds to their statement. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What does that mean? Have you thought about that for a second? I tell you, whoever has, they will have more, but whoever does not have, then what they do not have will be taken from them. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Actually, it makes a lot of sense. This is... This is a, like a, um, a lot of different religions and thoughts will, will say this in different ways. Um, if you've got a lot of money, it seems to be easy to make more money, doesn't it? And if you don't have any money, then you can't, you just can't seem to get. If you have money, all the banks will give you a loan. But if you don't have money, ain't no bank going to give you a loan. <laughs> doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> 
But if we take it into the context of what I think this story is about, which is grace, if I've given you grace and you've received it, then what does grace always do? It multiplies. You can't really, be, you can't really receive God's grace and then not extend that to others. That's what all the other parables have been about, correct? The parable I quoted earlier about the unfaithful, I mean, the, the unforgiving servant, he forgave him 10 million, gazillion, bazillion dollars. And then that guy who received that amazing grace turns around and beats a guy for a buck. He didn't get the grace or else he would have extended the grace. If we get grace, then it will abound all the more, as Paul says. Or every day your mercies are new. They just... If you get God's grace, it just is growing and growing and growing. Amen? Someone say amen. It, it boils inside of you like a wellspring of life, and you will thirst no more. You will hunger no more. I could quote more verses, but let's move on. But if you don't get grace, if it's been given to you and you just don't quite receive it, then how do you act? You dig holes. You hoard things. You get napkins or handkerchiefs, and you hide them and you are, you have no grace, you have no generosity to others and you don't get it. And if you don't get it, then what happens? Even what you haven't got, which is grace, it will be taken away from you, which means you got it, you were in, but you didn't respond correctly, so now you're out. Or I think I could even push it this way. Theologian sometimes talks about common grace, which is what everyone receives. Every human being receives God's common grace, which is they live, they breathe, they make money, they make babies, they have a life, and the rain, the clouds rain on the just and the unjust alike, and, and they have God's common grace to live and breathe in his beautiful creation. Everyone has that. And then Christians receive God's amazing, hessed love and kindness grace, and we get it, and we run with it. But if you don't get it, and you don't run with it, then even that will be taken from you, and even your common grace will be taken from you, and you will go to hell. You see that? It fits so much better than you had a gift, you were able to sing, but you didn't sing, so I'm taking that gift away from you. Now you can't sing, and you're going to hell. It makes a whole lot more sense. It's all about grace. It's not about trying harder, doing better, and being gooder. By the way, did you notice that no one lost any money? I almost wish there was a character in the story who invested it in something and then lost it and said, oh, master, I tried but failed. Because you can't lose it. You can't lose your grace. <laughs> you can't lose it. But you, but you do need to use it, right? You do need to use it. So Jesus goes on. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Wow. That's in the Bible. The Christ-like figure in this parable says, bring my enemies in front of me and slaughter them in front of me. What is that about? So again, these are parables of judgment. And I want you to know that all this grace stuff that we've been preaching for the past 16 weeks doesn't negate the fact that there's still going to be a judgment and there is a hell and people will, people will die outside of the grace of God. But why? In this verse, it says these enemies of mine, but in verse 14 previously, they were citizens. Again, in before out. God's amazing grace is extended to everyone. For God so loved the whole world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone gets this grace. Everyone gets the offer of grace. But if you reject the grace and say, I don't want the grace, then there's nothing he can do, right? He can force you to 
force feed it to you. But if not, then, then fine. So this guy rejected the grace and buried it under the ground. So he's going to hell. And by the way, all these other now enemies who once were citizens, now enemies who want nothing to do with it, they will go to hell too. You see that? That's why when people get scared about the whole grace preaching, they think that we're saying you can go live your life and you can just mess it all up and you're going to go to heaven anyway. And what I'm saying is that's true. You can go live your life and you can mess it up and you will go to heaven anyway. Because you're going to heaven not because you didn't mess it up. You're going to heaven because you trusted in Jesus, right? If you trust, he'll never mess, Jesus will never mess it up. But you will not go to heaven if you don't trust Jesus. So then what do we do with this parable? How do we apply it? You guys seen the movie Braveheart? <laughs> of course you have. My favorite movie of all time, of course. My favorite line in the movie, would you like to know? There's a lot of great lines in the movie. I think we'd all agree. But my favorite line is this. He's been invited to go back to Loxley Castle or whatever to, to discuss terms. Remember this? And he's loading up his horse, and the big guy with the beard comes to him and says, Don't go. Don't go. I have a bad feeling about this one. It's a trap. And Wallace looks at him and says, Do you know what happens if I don't go? That's the best Scottish accent I have. He says, No. And he says, Nothing. That's it. He gets on his horse and he rides away. And I've always loved that quote because it says, what happens if I don't try? What? Nothing. So in the end, the worst thing you can do is nothing. If you try and succeed, good for you. If you try and fail, you get back up again. But if you don't try at all, that's worse. Would you agree that's worse? It is. Robert Capon says, this parable, therefore, declares that the one thing that is to be examined or at the judgment is faith. Do you have faith? Not good deeds. Not whether or not you performed a certain way and you acted a certain way with your gift. It's whether or not you had faith enough to take a step of faith. You, hear, you see the analogy? Take a risk with your gifts and try. Don't do nothing. Do something. Not whether or not you succeed or fail, it's whether or not you have faith. And those who have faith take leaps of faith, steps of faith. You're not safe because you did good. You're safe because you had faith. Is that true? And it declares that the only thing that can deprive us of the favorable judgment already passed upon us by Jesus is unfaith. Now all of a sudden the parable makes complete sense. The two guys who doubled it, they, they received the gift from their master and said, I'm going to double it. I'm going to take a step of faith. If I lose this money, I could get cut off at the knees, but I'm going to try. Because that's what he wants me to do. He wants me to live my life to the fullest in faith. But the other guy says, I'm afraid of this guy. I'm not going to try. I'm going to dig a hole and bury it and sit on it and wait because I'm afraid. He did nothing with his faith. So he had no faith. See it? No faith. Took no leaps, no steps. Steve Brown says, the, it is impossible to serve a hard master and do anything but dig holes. If you serve a hard master, then all you're going to do is worry about whether or not you've pleased him, worry about whether or not everything's right, worry about whether or not you're going to keep your job. And so all you're doing is you're constantly burying holes. You're not taking any risks. You're not taking any leaps because you're too afraid. Have you ever worked for a hard man? Have you ever lived with a hard woman? <laughs> <laughs> the Bible says that. The Bible says that, right? Don't, it's better to live in the corner of your own house than with a contentious wife. It, it's not fun, is it? Not fun at all. And what do you do? You walk like, you know, tippy toes, don't want to make a mess. <laughs> I haven't I've used the same towel for six years because I'm afraid to dirty a new one. You know what I mean? 
or you're at work and you're like, you're on time and you're never late and you're only doing what you're told to do and you don't want to take any big risks because if you mess up, you're going to get fired, you're going to lose your job. And so this isn't fun. This is, a, this is slavery. So if you serve a hard master, then all you can do is dig holes. And there, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the world who think of God as a hard master. So what they do is they run from him and they hide from him and they refuse to go to church and they're just digging, they're just digging holes. Jesus is not an unreasonable and merciless master. Someone say amen. We don't have to take the ridiculously extravagant amount of grace and life that he's given us and play it safe and dig a hole. We can take it and go out and take risks and do things that appear foolish in the eyes of the world because if you're not working for a hard master, then you're working for a kind of master who says, hey, it's okay to fail. And when you fail, I'm gonna pick you up. And if we had a hard master, then we're just gonna hide in our hole. But if we have a loving father, we can say to him, I failed again. And he can say, I know. I'm going to pick you right back up. Just keep going. Keep swimming. Keep dancing. Keep drawing. Keep painting. Keep cooking. Keep trying. I love you. I gave you this life. And I want you to try. And I want you to fail. Because then you'll learn. And I'll pick you up. And you'll try it again. But if you do nothing, then you don't trust me. I think there are two kinds of Christians in the world. The first kind heard too many times the Sunday school story that you need to use your talents. Don't waste your talents. You need to work to your full potential. And what they've said is, I'm afraid that I'm never going to be able to work to my full potential. So I'm going to color inside the lines. I'm going to play it safe for my hard master. And I'm not I'm just going to play it safe. I'm going to obey all the rules that I can. And I'm going to pretend like I'm enjoying it. <laughs> but then there are other Christians who have caught the grace of God, the overwhelming extravagance of his kindness and love and mercy that he bestowed upon us in his son, Christ Jesus, that he would spare no expense, that he loves us, that we are the treasure that he was willing to die for in order to, in order to buy us, that he loves us without a doubt. And those people say, because God loves me, because I'm safe already, I can have some fun. And instead of coloring inside the lines, I can just throw that paint wherever I want. I can just have a, I can, I can take some risks and try something that people might not expect. I could quit my job and go to Africa. I could quit my job and plant a church. I could walk into my, my friend's house and tell them that Jesus loves them. I could walk into a hospital and pray out loud in front of the doctors because I'm already safe. I don't need to play it safe. I can take some risks. And when we take risks and we take steps of faith and we trust in Jesus, we are showing him, I trust you and I have faith. You see that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are good, that you are loving, that you are kind, that you are merciful, that you are our father and you're a better father than we could ever be to our children because you're constantly forgiving us, constantly loving us, constantly picking us up, and you've already extended to us an extravagant amount of life and grace and mercies that are new every morning. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see that. Every day, trust in your kindness and your mercy and learn that we are safe in the arms of the Lord and that we can take risks and that we can live our lives because the worst possible thing we can do is nothing and bury it in a hole. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.